I'm Jamie Kearney, a dad of four. I have three girls and one son, and they've all experienced positive returns with neurofeedback. You're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Thank you all for joining Neuro Noodles Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Jansen and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for over 50 years. Holy cow, that's a lot of anios. You can find Dr. Laura at jansons.com. That's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. That's D-R-S-K-I-P-H-R-I-N.com. Today's special guest is dad, neurodad, Jamie Carney, who has a bunch of questions on EEG and neurofeedback. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook. And as usual, we run through our, our program here. We have some shout outs, uh, guys. Uh, Skip, do you have a shout out? Yeah, sure. Uh, the big guy, Santa. It's his, it's oh. his time to shine. Would that be uh, Mr. Kringle, Chris Kringle? Sure. Last name Claus as well. He's got a couple of aliases. Yeah, I think he's a real estate broker too. I saw that. Uh, let's see. Jamie, who do you got? I'd like to sing a happy birthday to Jesus, the reason for the season. So happy birthday, Jesus. Baby Jesus, of course, not the older one. Baby Jesus is so much cuter. I thought you were going to give us a few bars. Happy birthday to you, Jesus. That, that'll, that'll, that'll do. We'll edit that out in post. Uh, Laura, do you have another one? Santa. Shout out to Santa. Oh, I think Skip had that one. Hard Did anybody have Frosty? And- oh, Hard Rock Coco and Joe. That's a huge one. Okay. Hard Rock Coco and Joe. And then I have, I guess I'll close this out with Rudolph. The techies will get this one. Rudolph, the dysregulated nosed reindeer. Okay. Insert crickets. Uh, <laughs> Next, we have our article of the week. Dr. Skip, you have one. I thought it was kind of cool. We've been talking about the uh, DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, past, yeah. present, and future. What was up with that? It, it actually, so we've been talking about the DSM probably every show to some extent. Um, it's a really convenient punching bag for folks in the industry, or it's not. Right. Or it's uh, something you just adhere to and follow it and you're good to go and don't think a second thing about it. Um, What the article does, I think a really good job is gives the history of the document itself, which I won't go into here. Um, We can put a link to the article maybe on our uh, on on our podcast, but in the the notes, Um, it, it goes all the way back to the 1800s. Right. So. And, and it goes back further than that in us classifying people. That's been going on forever, right? We you got those guys and you have us guys. And so the, the idea of classification has been around for as long as we've probably been around. There's, there's the other, there's always the other, right? So you're distinguishing and then uh, differentiating between folks. Where it kind of turned into what it is now, and, and it's uh, affectionately, I'm doing air quotes, referred to as the Bible, the, the psychiatric Bible is it, it, it's the place where all the, the diagnoses live. Um, so again, the article talks about the origins of that and how we got to where we got, which 
again, if you like that kind of stuff, um, it talks about just social constructs and, and things important at the time of the day, influencing the book. And the book obviously has a big influence on folks and how they're diagnosed or labeled. So you can see how things kind of permeate. Um, the future piece of it, uh, I thought was really interesting in that it allowed for the idea that there may be at some point some different ways of diagnosing folks. And I think, uh, you know, based on our past few podcasts, that's where the interest comes in for me, for sure. But I bet you Laura is too. Um, and particularly last week when we were talking to Dr. Thatcher, the idea of possibly transitioning diagnoses to something like a, a, an EEG, uh, which would then really look at how the brain's working so we can conceptualize what's working, what's not working in a different way for treatment purposes, right? And right now, I think folks would agree that the main treatment um, for psychiatric disorders is medication. And so, you know, in, involved in this futuretopia of different ways of diagnosing, there would probably need to be a change in the application and prevalence of medications. So there's that. Um, but the article, again, opens up the, the idea or, or the avenues to future uh, slash better ways of diagnosing that might be more accurate. And so that's the gist. Again, it's an interesting article. We'll put the link in there for you if you want, if you're history buffs or just like seeing how things evolve. Um, but that's how, that, that was it. How, how often is that updated, Doug? Uh, it's, so we're at DSM five, which, five. yeah, nerd, nerd alert here. Um, they switched from Roman numerals to Arabic numerals between the four and the five, which was supposed to be a subtle, um, indication that, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're evolving this document. Um, but back to your question, it's been random. Um, there's been long gaps where it was 13, 14 years. They did a TR text revision on the DSM four. Uh, after about six years, um, there's been other periods. So then we went from 2000 to 2013 between the TR and the five. And, you know, we're in, in limbo now. Um, so it depends. It depends. Is it, po is it possible for a psychologist to have like the third version? You know what I mean? Not keep it oh, up yeah. to date. I've got one laying around just for prosperity. Yeah. And plus it kind of cost a hundred bucks. So I kept it. Right. But I mean... I would think that as new evidence comes in or whatever to justify the silos that they put people in, in that book, you would want to keep up to date with the diagnoses. I mean, is it possible for a psychologist not to have the latest version and give it, it incorrect? It, I mean, because of the fact it doesn't come out weekly, um, it, it is virtually impossible and, and slightly unethical to not be up to date on at least the lingo. Whether you agree with it or not, different story maybe. Um, on that note, something that's really interesting, at least to me, is, is, and I'm always you know, wondering how stuff works and, and why it works the way it does. Um, let's not leave out insurance and medication, big pharma, et cetera, in the, the, the preponderance, the prevalence of this document in the 80s. Um, it really took off between the three and the four it, it took it to this place of it having a need other than just a bunch of mental health folks talking about patients. Uh, now it had this other place that it landed where you need a diagnosis to get reimbursed by insurance. 
So now this, this document, this Bible, so to speak, and actually that's when they kind of adopted the term Bible, uh, you need it. You need it to get paid. And so now there's a functionality to it. Uh, interesting note, side note, by the way, when you read statistics on the prevalence of depression, anxiety, whatever, fill in the blank diagnosis, it's often from canvassing um, billings that have diagnostic codes attached. That's how those things get tracked for the most part, right? So when you hear, hey, 30% of Americans were depressed over this period of time, they're, they're canvassing the billings that have gone in and they're, they're looking at uh, diagnostic codes that are being used. So anyway, long answer to the question, but yeah, if somebody doesn't know of or is least refers to the DSM, it's kind of a thing, it's kind of a problem. Dr. Laura, you got it. You got anything on DSM, or we're going to move to your video? Uh, well, I, I guess just to mention the uh, research domain criteria. So, uh, aside from everything the Skip just mentioned about the the necessity of the DSM, uh, you know it, that's been a tradition. It's it's psychiatric uh, based, developed by psychiatrists physicians and you know you go through that DSM and you know you'll, you'll hear us talk about it here that there's very little um, it's more subjective uh, than objective there, there's probably almost nothing in there about neuropsychology or objective testing or certainly nothing in there about EEGs and QEEGs and neurofeedback so but the the National Institute of Mental Health uh, you know, aside from the DSM, and, and they'll say that they're not trying to replace the DSM, but what, what they're trying to do is, is have a, a full, full range understanding of, of mental uh, health, behavioral health conditions. And they look at uh, understanding things from every direction. So they, they look at, you know, trying to understand people uh, and their behavior from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, the environment, they're looking at genetics, they're looking at the molecular level, the cellular level, they're looking at neurodynamic uh, circuits, uh, physiology, behavior, uh, all of the behavioral dimensions, which is really what the DSM, you know, uh, looks at is behaviorally, what are we seeing? So it incorporates all of that and environmental factors, and then uh, using self-report uh, self checklists to help with diagnosis. So they're, they're looking in a very global way uh, how to understand human behavior and they're not limiting, you know, to, you know, subjective things or objective things, or they're trying to get it all, all, all around. So what they're doing is they're, uh, you know, gathering all this research to be able to, you know, understand it at, at very specific uh, levels. And, and, you know, I don't know that that's going to replace the DSM at any point, but it's somewhere to go if you have, you know, questions about diagnoses or questions about the basis of, uh, a condition, they'll they'll be able to give you this kind of wraparound uh, definition, and um, it's it's more robust. It's a, a deeper way of understanding what's going on than than the manual. Yeah, got it. And Dr. Laura, you had a video that uh, we're going to put a link on to the the blog and podcast. Hey Pete, uh, sorry, can can I just yeah, say something real quick to yeah, get it? So so to the dad on the podcast. And, I, and I'm going to speak for Laura just loosely, but, you know, I, I, we, we've talked. You have the DSM, which provides diagnoses, and then folks have, you know, uh, whatever the diagnoses might be, right? Fill in the blank, ADHD, autism, depression, anxiety. 
that's again for the purposes of, of being able to just identify some symptoms and call it something um, it the, the pro the, the diagnostic process fits into something we do again which is kind of label because that's how we just make sense of things I would say again speaking for Laura touch is that we spend a lot of time with parents trying to un un teach, un unlearn these diagnostic labels and, and kind of do what we're doing in this talk here and describe, hey, this only represents certain behaviors. And I'm not trying to say you do this, Jamie. I'm saying it's kind of inherent in the process. And when you label somebody, it, it kind of thins who they are. So now you have a kid, uh, a, a, a depressed kid versus a kid with depression and prepositions matter, right? They matter in, in how we talk about things. And so Laura and I get to talk about, as she just mentioned, all the other factors that contribute to behavior. And you're gonna be really challenged to do a blood draw and see depression under a microscope or autism under a microscope or anxiety under a microscope. They don't exist like that. They exist as constructs, as, as terms. And so it seems like part of our work is, is getting back to the human. Yeah, we gotta call it this thing so you get reimbursed by insurance and we can discuss it with other providers and get treatment, et cetera, et cetera. But you have a kid that has these symptoms that are related to the things that Laura mentioned not as well, but exclusively, right? You have to take all these other factors yeah. into consider it. So that's, that's just a comment to a parent. Um, I think, again, we get to do it a lot during the week because the, the diagnostic system kind of skirts around that and it, and it ends up at this label and then that's the end of the conversation. So. I think as a parent, you know, <clears throat> the first goal of any parent should be is my kid getting better, not worry about the labels and then the second you know i think sometimes they get the label depression or hey your kid is depressed well if any kid if you really look at any child who's dealing with depression they're happy a lot of times too so it's not like they're walking around completely depressed 24 7 a day you just have to make sure that there's ways down are lessened and whatever treatment you take help with that and hopefully cure that. And then obviously the labels that you're putting on the kid are purely for insurance purposes. And as a dad, you want to sit there and say, secondary, how am I going to pay for this? You know, <laughs> but it's got to be secondary, not first, like, whoa, first, I want my kid to be healthy, but I don't want to pay for it. Um, it's got to be, I want my kid to be healthy and then I'll figure out a way to pay for it. Exactly. All right, Dr. Laura, how about this new brain surgery? Cured a man, 18-year-old, opioid addiction. What was that about? Oh, let's see. Me un unmuted. Okay. So um, apparently uh, uh, there was a gentleman who was an uh, op opioid addict and uh, very you know, severe as, as those addictions can become. So severe he can, you know, couldn't function at all. Um, went to several rehabs, all of those kinds of stuff, uh, things, and uh, all sorts of medications to try to get him weaned off of the opioids and nothing, nothing was going. And uh, he, he was selected to participate um, in, a, in the kind of experimental surgery where they took a stimulator and installed it basically deep into uh, the center of his brain into this region called the nucleus accumbens. And this is something uh, interesting that came across it in the news. Um, 
because it was something that uh, Dr. Thatcher brought up last week. Dr. Thatcher is the gentleman who uh, developed the NeuroGuide, the, the software that we use for neurofeedback. Anyway, he um, and he uh, gathers uh, the the comparison data that we use to to train different areas of the brain. So we he provides the databases uh, of normal brains in essence, so that we can train different areas. Um, last year, he uh, Dr. Thatcher developed the um, the cerebellum and a lot of deeper brain structures that help us deal with autism and uh, occupational and developmental disorders. Uh, but this year, uh, he said in the next couple of weeks, uh, he, he's got um, a way to train th this area of the nucleus accumbens, which is uh, has to do with uh, addiction very directly, has to do with the chemicals that get um, involved in when people are you know, as severely uh, addicted as this person was. So you can go in and have brain surgery and have this area of your brain simulated. And the good news for the, for the guy in the surgery is that, yeah, he came out of the surgery and no longer had his addiction, like he uh, cured, so to speak. But what an ordeal to have to you know, get your, you know, essentially get your brain drilled into and have uh, you know, all the risks involved in all of that and have things installed in your brain in order to uh, get cured from the opioid. Um, but uh, you know, coming up next week or whenever you know, the, the software comes out or the database comes out, that we'll be able to uh, use neurofeedback to train that exact same area. And I'll be super curious on, you know, what that's going to do for us in the future, you know, hopefully for opioid addiction, but, you know, uh, we, I don't see a lot of that in my office because, you know, they're, they're in other stages of their problem, you know, uh, in, instead of coming to neurofeedback, but I certainly see a lot of other types of addiction, a lot of alcohol and and, uh, you know, you can be addicted. It's legal, but you can still be addicted to cannabis and, um, you know, other things. So be curious to see what it does, um, uh, you know, in the future here, now that we have access to, to use neurofeedback with it. You said cannabis. I'm writing that down for a future podcast. Sure. That, that, that'd be a mover. Uh, Dr. Skip, you have a, a book uh, on here. Tell us about it. Focus, bringing time, energy, money. What? Focus. Yeah, focus. Um, it's uh, the guy calls himself the urban monk um, and pretty interesting guy in his own history. The book itself is probably about what you think it's about. And it's the, the practice of developing focus, which is, uh, you know, a, a pretty prevalent topic, certainly in, in busy times and, and the distractions we have. I think my, my opinion, right, my review, I guess, is that he does a really good job of talking about age-old ideas and ideals, which is being present, um, you know, not being distracted by things, being aware of thoughts taking you away. Now it's called mindfulness. For a long time, it was, you know, meditation was a different branch of it. Um, what, I, what I appreciate about how he does it is it's contemporary, and, and he seems like a pretty cool dude for whatever that's worth to folks, um, but he expresses these things in ways that are usually understandable and, and topical, but also his interventions, if you will, uh, are, are approachable, right? It's things you can do. And he does a really good job, probably not coincidentally, of lining things out in a really clear way on how to practice focus. And that's, again, probably not a coincidence because folks that have trouble focusing uh, would have difficulty with really vague instructions, right? So he, he just lays out some things. And of course he has a website that allows you to, you know, follow along and track what you're doing. So anyway, 
there's focus. Uh, focus, got it. You still got uh, six hours to have it delivered, right? Amazon, if you want, <laughs> for Christmas. Six hours, clock's, clock's moving. All right. All right. Uh, on to our main topic. We got uh, NeuroDad, uh, Jamie D, Jamie D C. Jamie, can you give us a little background? <laughs> A little background about yourself. What, Jamie what, what? DC. The D is for dad. Uh, it's Jamie uh, Carney. Uh, I am a uh, dad in Chicago with four kids. My kids range from, I've got a 17-year-old daughter, uh, a 12-year-old son, uh, an eight- and seven-year-old um, uh, daughters as well. And, and they've all, um, in some capacity, have worked with neurofeedback and have gotten positive results, especially with the, uh, the COVID um, coronavirus, uh, just an eight year old doesn't, and a seven year old don't, they, they're around before this lockdown, they're around kids that hear things from their parents talking, but don't really understand what that meant. And uh, we have one of our uh, daughters has huge anxiety problems still to this day, but they've been lessened. So the, the extreme um, issues we were dealing with were lessened through neurofeedback. We tried a bunch of other things and neurofeedback seemed to have lessened the, um, the pain we were dealing with where she thought she was going to die or, this or that every night she was having a panic attack uh we don't have that much anymore well, well jamie thanks for coming on board i'm gonna let you ask your questions to the doctors i'm gonna take a back seat and then i'll come back in uh when you're when you're done uh fire away with your questions the show is yours okay so first of all i think there was one question we were talking before about sports right and i think i, I want to start with sports i know that wasn't one of the questions i sent but uh, my child, my, my oldest daughter plays lacrosse. Um, girls lacrosse is a little bit different than boys in the fact that you're not all padded up, but there are a lot of concussions because the ball or the stick can hit uh, the unprotected girl in the head and it causes problems. Um, would you, uh, using a brain map, wouldn't that be a better way to my daughter has received a concussion and she just played a test on a computer screen and tried to memorize things um to pass that concussion protocol but i've always thought a brain map would be a better way to do it before each season so that if she does receive a concussion we can look at that brain map from before and compare it does that seem uh to you guys as a, a good solution or a better solution than the current concussion protocol that's used in sports today? I'll, Laura, I'll, I'll jump in quick and then you can answer on your end. Of course. Uh, clinically, Jamie, like always, always going to have a soft spot for pre-test, post-test, right? For having data that yeah. you can com compare, not to turn your daughter into digits, you know? Uh, but that's always preferred, right? Hey, here's where we started out. We had this event um, and then here's where we are now. And so you can, you know, with a lot of assuredness uh, point to the event as being some in some, some uh, level of impact on, on what your post test is. Right. 
Um, so there's that. And then, you know, thinking big picture too, um, and, and again, not to get too far away from you or your daughter in the question, but data collection is something that's really helpful in spreading the word on interventions. And we're talking about neurofeedback, right? So mm -hmm. if we have a bunch of high school kids, 16-year-old uh, female lacrosse players, and we have pre-test before the season started, post-test after the season, now we can get some pretty good data on prevalence of concussion um, for all kinds of reasons, right? Treatment, interventions, uh, safety protocols, et cetera. So yeah, it is, is the short answer, right? Like I, I think a pre-test would, would be infinitely helpful to compare to a post-test for the reasons I mentioned and others. Yeah, because I just feel, and, and my, my, my feeling on this whole process is the current concussion protocol that are used in sports is a false sense of security because taking some sort of word jumble, flashing words on the screen and memorizing them and try to remember them, I, I don't feel that that really is a great indication of a concussion you're cured from a concussion or not um and, and so when she she suffered a concussion as a freshman and she was going through this protocol i was like this is not i'm not i don't feel comfortable with this you're uh not to you know try to make sense of what you're saying but what i'm hearing too is you're referencing screening tools and screening tools are you know like geez what's an analogy i don't you know you, you have a limit on a fish you know and anything under 12 inches uh you know you got to throw back that doesn't mean you caught an 11 and a half inch fish you know what i mean it means it was under yeah. criteria um, and so there's a, a giant difference as you're referring to i think between screening tools and, and assessment tools right we're, we're trying mm -hmm. to rule something out and I, you know, I certainly don't know the motivations of folks that set up the protocol in your area, but it, it might be a little CYA involved there, right? But you're, you're also trying to say, hey, we have to determine to draw the line somewhere. Here's a quick, easy way to do it. Um, you know, do we think doing a cue is better? I, I can say for myself, hell yeah, um, because you get in, infinitely more information. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. Yeah, and you know what, uh, the, the tools we have available are, um, you know, back to Dr. Thatcher and developing databases, uh, we own, we have uh, purchased the database from Dr. Thatcher that is a database of people who've been hit in the head. So, you know, when you're, you're talking, there, there's a zillion ways to get hit in the head from different angles and different types of hits and different parts of your brain, your, your brain sloshing around in liquid front to back, side to side. I mean, you every, you know, brain injury is different. You know, just, I always say it, you know, just like you have a different fingerprint, every injury is different. And as many people know, who've, who've experienced a concussion or been, been with people who have had concussions is uh, once you get one, you tend to collect them. You tend to get more than one mm -hmm. uh, for, for whatever reasons, several reasons, but, um, but the database that we own, we can literally type into the computer, the age of your child, and um, compare their specific results against a database of a normal brains and how different is the child's brain from normal. But we also have a database of injured brains and we can tell you with you know, uh, certain limits of um, how, how much your child looks like someone who's had a brain injury. We could say from zero to five, 
boy, this is the, you know, the, the poster child for someone who's, who's had a concussion of a, a high, high severity. And that's the kind of information you want to know. You want to know exactly where they were hit, what areas are affected, um, high, medium, and low kind of thing. How bad is it? And then mm -hmm. how, how do you compare against other people who've been injured? Um, and, and then that, you know, that, that's your baseline. Um, and so, so if they got hit, let's say this season, that doesn't mean they didn't get hit five seasons ago and there's something else, you know, in there. So to have a, a pre and post, you, you know what you're looking at, you know, you know, if it's the injury they sustained this week versus the injury they may have sustained, you know, three, four years ago. And it's absolutely more specific information. It's assessment, like Skip said, uh, very specific and objective of what actually, what, what part got bruised or sheared or knocked or, you know, and then we know what to, um, you know, try to expect based on what areas of the brain were affected and, and uh, be able to, you know, set up treatment plans, et cetera, for, for making corrections. You're referring also, Laura, to the intra and inter personal comparison, right? So you can compare the person to peers, other 16 year olds uh, from the norm base and, and from the, the TBI base. And then also you're comparing the person to the person pre and post. Mm -hmm. it's, right. a, it's, it's a hell of a lot of information. Yeah. And you're right. It's better than getting a connect the dots, uh, you know, compared to what compared to other kids, but other kids have been hit compared, you know, what's the norm reference on the connected dots, um, you know, generically speaking, whereas this is, yeah, absolutely more specific information. Yeah. And, and were you Einstein before you got hit in the head? So connect the dot. Now you're performing at the high average, but you were superior range. It's impossible to, to know the answer to that without any pre-test or uh, a kind of rough screening tool. What if it happened like three years ago? Right. How's the current, how, how's that going to help? Or, you know, it, well, it, it, you would have a pre and a post, so at least you'd get them back to the, the. You'd at least know what the normal was before they started that sport, that mm -hmm. season. Yeah, mm -hmm. you'd have it. You'd have a current assessment. Here's where you are now. Whenever now is when, whenever whenever mm. the clock started. Like I think my kid is somewhat normal now, so I'm going to take a test. And if they're not six months from now because of the sport. I then can at least refer back to the, the, the now to get that brain map is what my, I always thought was. On this. All right, another question for you. Like, so that, that was just brain mapping for concussion, but when should a parent think about like neurofeedback as an option? There's a lot of people out there, like when you mentioned neurofeedback, there's a lot of people who just don't know anything about it. But when, when should a parent think about neurofeedback? You want to go, Laura? Uh, anytime. I mean, um, you know, what we're, we're trying to do is get brains regulated, you know, to, to a healthy rhythm. I mean, that, that's how we kind of look at it. You know, again, rather than looking at diagnoses and labeling, as you say, um, you know, diagnosis and labels are important, um, you know, for communicating something's wrong. But, you know, when, once you get into it, all, all we're really trying to do is, is – get people back to a healthy rhythm and you know when there's something wrong or dysregulated or off balance and you know if you're noticing something's you know not right i mean that's all you really need to say to us is boy you know they were this way for the first you know five years of life and now they're doing this this is unusual this is not them this is not what's typical and we know something's you know dysregulated something's wrong something's out of bounds 
Uh, can you take a look and tell me how different they are from other kids their age? And, uh, and we can give you that information. Yeah, there, there's, there's this kind of difference in this part of their brain. And here's what you can do about it to, you know, correct it back or set it back on a natural path. And uh, so when, you know, anytime, basically, um, I see children, I have a five-year-old who, who comes to see us. And uh, in fact, he's got, not only is he, you know, five and, you know, kind of low, low on the developmental uh, scale, but um, he, he's also autism. So he doesn't, you know, speak and he has a lot of social, you know, disturbances. Um, but it, they, you know, being verbal is not a requirement for coming in uh, to, to get assessed or get trained at all. So basically, you know, four, five, six, uh, absolutely bring them in. I can echo all that too. Uh, and, and to, you know, maybe broad brush here, but if you're talking to somebody like Laura and I professionally, right, chances are something's up. And with the description Laura gave of what neurofeedback does, and it kind of allows the brain to just operate more harmoniously that's how and why it's so effective for such a broad range of symptoms, or as we were saying a little while ago, diagnoses, right? The, the, the neurofeedback doesn't know anything about diagnoses. It knows, it knows about brain rhythms and, and, and them being in efficient ranges. And so that's what it strives for. So that's why it covers, it's, again, so many, so many symptoms and diagnoses. There's another aspect to this too, uh, that is, I don't know how popular it is uh, in, in your guys' world. Um, you can comment on it if you want, but there's also peak performance, right? Not, not everybody has a brain injury or mm -hmm. has some kind of, you know, quotes, ailment that requires or, or that they've chosen to treat with neurofeedback. Some folks just want to maximize or optimize their performance, and they do it for those reasons. Um, I've, I've, I know of folks that get treated for that. Um, I guessed a couple weeks ago. Michael Cohen uh, has shared stories about musicians that have come to see him, uh, you know, kind of Philharmonic type musicians. I just want to differentiate, you know, you guys, um, not that you couldn't improve too, right? But uh, that they've come and their performances were better for their own reasons and, and their own descriptions, but they have all commented that that's why they were there and that's what they got out of it. So there is this other aspect of neurofeedback as well, just to put that out there. What about like... Uh... Uh, somebody who may have developed like recently bad habits or anything like that would would neurofeedback help with that? Like maybe their their habit building or their their most recent habit building is is due to some other underlying issue that they're just covering up with. Um, yeah, I don't know, drug use or something like that. Let's say they're they're dealing with something like that where they f feel addicted. It's, it's a little hard to answer definitively one way or the other yeah. without asking a bunch of questions about a more mm -hmm. particulars, but I can say this, um, and hopefully it's a reasonable answer for you. We had a girl come in our office with pretty significant anxiety, uh, and she did neurofeedback and her handwriting got better. Meaning again, the approach for neurofeedback is that it regulates brainwave activity. And so you can call them underlying issues, you know, for our conversation here, but it, it works with timing. And so things just work more efficiently. And when things work more efficiently, all kinds of things uh, improve, clear up, however you want to think about it, right? So, so it, it, it moves a lot of structures and I don't mean that literally, but um, it, it, it moves a lot of furniture around, right? So you're like, hey, I want to clear this out, but now that this is cleared out, I can see this vantage point better. And, and so I, I think the answer is yes, Jamie. 
Okay. Jamie, can I ask the dad a question? Yeah. You, you're on a holiday break now, right? Mm-hmm. The kids all took their finals and whatnot. You have a bunch of kids yes. in school. Yes. Like, what are the kids doing, especially the older ones, to, you know, cram and study? You know, I know some colleges are not – you don't have to do the entrance entrance exams, but uh, there's still a good portion out there that uh, are trying to get an edge for study taking. Like, what do your kids do? What what do uh, their, their friends do uh, to get ready for big tests? Well, so – it's been a different year, obviously, but before this, um, which I always felt was an unfair advantage, a lot of kids were taking, uh, you know, ADHD medication and Adderall and, and um, Ritalin or whatever it was. And the reason why I thought it was unfair is because anyone who was diagnosed with ADHD um, in high school, they were given more time to take the test. In fact, there was no time constraints on the test. But anyone who wasn't diagnosed with it had to take it within a certain amount of 45 minutes or an hour had to take their final. And so you're basically, um, you're rewarding kids to get tested with ADHD and get Ritalin and Adderall, which drug them up, um, because they're going to have more time to study and more, more time to complete a timed restrained test. I always felt that that was a little bit unfair, but there is a lot of that going on. This year is a little bit different in the fact that most schools, uh, at least for the first semester, didn't do finals um, or, or much testing because of the hybrid be at home model. That it was, uh, it was more project-based work that was helping them move through the testing process. But I, I feel like there's too much of a uh, uh, reliance on, 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 on those drugs like Adderall and Ritalin uh, to help kids today cram and brain brightening or, or something like that, where she can help you focus. To me, I would, as a dad, I would prefer to take that over, um, my child doing something else. I, I think, you know, you know, what was popping into my head as you're talking, uh, Jamie, is um, kind of the, the sense of helplessness that, medi- you know, that medication gives. So, you know, the child in, in the family and wh- whoever, the schools, the teachers, the grandmas, whoever, you know, people, you know, come at these kind of issues with, I have no uh, control here, but I'm going to put my money on the, on the medicine to do it quote for me. So I I can't, Mm -hmm. I don't have it within myself to be better. I need to rely on this X thing here, which happens to be medicine. And, you know, it, it, it breeds dependency, whether, you know, the the drug is addicting is one thing by itself, but, but the point, the psychological addiction, you know, says a lot of, you know, kind of what kind of, uh, empowerment or lack thereof, you know, we're, we're giving the kids by having them, you know, look at that as an option. The other thing, you know, when you're talking about ADHD and you're talking about medications, um, you know, even without the, the traditional, or I'm sorry, without the, the neurofeedback, if you go, if you do go to the, the traditional testing, um, th- there's all sorts of research on how many people who come for just basic neuropsychological test, um, we use the word malinger. They, they kind of, and whether it's consciously or unconsciously, uh, I'll use, you know, fake, but 
you know, a lot of times it's unconscious, uh, you know, skew their own results on the uh, traditional ADHD test. And, and the numbers, it, it's one in three. So people, if you go to a psychiatrist, you know, you know what the, anyone can Google what to tell the psychiatrist to get the riddle in. But then a good psychiatrist will send you for testing in one in three of those people who go to testing are, are faking essentially. And again, consciously, unconsciously, whatever. And, and how could they not be motivated by what you just said, Jamie, that they get extra time and they get, you know, little benefits. And, and that's not to say that there aren't, you know, several kids struggling and, and suffering with learning disorders and ADHD can cause a lot of suffering. But, but I think the point that neurofeedback in, you know, these other ways of addressing things can build empowerment. Like you have, we're, we're, you're training yourself with the tool, with the things that can give you strength to succeed in school versus you have no power. You're powerless over your condition. Go take a med, uh, go see your psychiatrist for endless years. And you're kind of a victim to your condition versus when you think of neurofeedback, that's the message we're trying to instill is like, Hey, you, your brain's got the power to correct itself. Here's the tool to, to get it corrected. And it's just a, a completely different mindset in terms of, you know, empowerment versus a victimization. Yeah. Well, might... Go well, ahead. Uh... Real, real quick, Jamie, along with that, uh, Laura is while the brain's learning how to retrain itself, you're also working on the same structure that interprets all the information you just mentioned. So it's mm -hmm. like going to a PT and you're like, Hey, your knee's messed up. We're going to do a little uh, PT on it, to get it stronger. Um, at, as the knee's getting stronger in and of itself, it's working better and it's able to handle whatever knees do walk and all that. So same with the brain, we're doing the training on it for, you know, to address specific symptoms usually. Uh, and then make it better. Yeah. yeah. And make it better. And then overall, the structure of the brain is then in a position to manage all the information. Hey, I'm doing things better. Hey, it's probably something that I'm doing. It's it, if I'm being clear, you're, you're working on the specifics, but you're also working on kind of the flow and, and, and how that particular organism uh, uh, works. Right. So it, it works better. And, and conversely, and, I, and I'll stop after this, but when someone comes to see you with a TBI and we're doing our testing on them and I'm talking neuropsych testing, it, it's the same brain that then's trying to process the information that we're giving them on the test results. So we're like, Hey, you had trouble in this particular area. And it's the same brain that had the trouble in that particular area. That's trying to conceptualize what it is you're saying and, and, and interpret English and all those things. It's it, so it, on the other side, the converse is true that as the, the specifics improve, so does the overall functioning of the brain, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right, Jamie, sorry. No, I was just gonna. I was gonna comment on the ADHD, which is a, a, a sticking point with with me. I, I feel like, and this is my take. Um, every person has some degree of ADHD, and it gets worse as we get more and more technology in our lives. Um, so I feel like anyone could can be diagnosed with ADHD. It's just the extreme. I know when I was a camp counselor for kids, I would always get the ones they called ADHD kids, the ones that were all in Ritalin. And one out of the 15 kids that I would be with uh, every day, I would say one of them was truly had some, some attention uh, span issues. The other ones had kid issues. And I feel like too many today parents just throw them pills and, and get them that, that way until I realized there was also another benefit in terms of testing was the time where I was sort of like, wait, this is kind of unfair. 
just my comments on that. Mm-hmm. Um, another question I had for you guys. Well, like what, what type of ailments besides, I, I know we've talked about ADHD and anxiety. What type of ailments does neurofeedback commonly treat? Like where, where do you guys see this fitting? I know it could work for a vast, you know, majority of, of diagnoses, but which ones do you feel it works best with? I'll let you take that, Laura. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an excellent question, um, and sort of you know back to it's difficult to answer because even you know if we're talking about ADHD, um, everyone has a different thumbprint. Kind of like you said, your experience, you know, uh, working as a camp counselor, that you see you see a, a range of of things, and not everyone has the same you know presentation of it. So, you know, again, what we're doing is we're just finding out what your thumbprint looks like and we're, we're adjusting whatever, you know, compared to yourself, you know, what, what are we trying to improve upon? So that, that doesn't answer your question um, because the, I guess the, the, the big answer to your question is that all things that are dysregulated, we could try to regulate it better, but, you know, I'll still try to answer it that, yeah, we I have tons of folks who come in uh, for anxiety um, and, and see a lot of results. And, and that's, you know, such a basic thing, you know, there we go, one in three people with anxiety, you know, panic attacks for sure, because we uh, add biofeedback in there. So help people, again, with this sense of control and things that they can consciously do to um, regulate their physiology, their breathing techniques and, and heart rate management and things like that to, to help people with panic attacks. Um, and, and so those are very basic, you know, things that people have anxiety but I also had I had a gentleman in a young adult who uh, came in with basically what to me looked like schizophrenia he had all sorts of you know bizarre thoughts and he you know to be 20 years old and he was like ultra into conspiracy theories and and not to you know go down that that pipe as much as this was really unusual just super unusual thinking and you know, rather than being in the video games and goofing off with his friends and doing whatever, thinking about school or anything, work, anything, uh, he was more, you know, kind of down this, you know, really bizarre rabbit hole. Anyway, we uh, did, uh, it was 30 sessions, you know, we had 20 and like, yeah, let's try a little bit more. We got to 30 sessions with this young guy and uh, we did a scan uh, before and after scans in all the places that were typically regulated, uh, dysregulated for schizophrenia uh, were essentially gone. So he looked more like a typical young adult with some executive issues rather than someone who looked like he was going to be living at home for the rest of his life, you know, with schizophrenia. So, um, yeah, so from anxiety to schizophrenia, but, you know, as Skip said, you know, we can address learning disorders. We can address motor dysfunction, uh, like, like you said, handwriting, um, there's autism for sure. Have a lot of autism folks who come in depression for sure. Uh, pain management, migraines. I mean, we can kind of go on and on. And then I see a variety of these people, you know, every day, like they, they come in for different things and they just want to try it, you know, and to your point, uh, Jamie, that, you know, there are people, they've tried the medicine and it's not doing it, or they don't, you know, like the side effects, or they don't like the meaning of taking medicine or the powerlessness of taking medicine. They want to have more control or, or whatever, try something different. And, and, um, you know, in, in my mind, sky's the limit. Like there, there's many things that, you know, traumatic brain injury, concussions, et cetera. So I, I don't know that there's a limit on what it doesn't do. And, and I, I don't even want to answer, you know, what does it work best on? Because 
you know, again, it, it's such a, uh, you know, difficult to define on an individual basis, kind of what's their diagnosis and, you know, what are they better at? I think what I like, you know, if I boil it down is that when, when people are done, they're like, something's different. I feel better. I'm doing my life better. Kind of to what Skip had, you know, referred to earlier that there, there's something that, you know, all aspects are regulated better. I'm, I'm, I'm doing school better, but I'm also doing work better. I'm dealing with my family better. So there's just a, an improvement because the, the rhythm is the flow is better and it, it just improves, you know, on, on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. I would agree, Laura. Uh, again, it, with, with the sky's the limit kind of thing, uh, I know you had a specific question, Jamie, right? But the answer is uh, lots of things, right? You point to the brain, it, 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 it fixes this, you know, and you can point to a picture of a brain. Um, where we see probably the most improvement, and it, it's a general perception on our end, but it, again, it's this being able to understand their improvements and and what i mean is people come in and oftentimes kids get dropped off or brought in you know um and, and their parents are saying hey we're seeing this this and this what we see again just to try to generalize is folks kind of being able to conceptualize how they're doing better and and i mean both in recognizing it in their life as well as being able to articulate it and being able to build on it and, and i know i'm you know maybe portraying this as kind of the panacea and but it, it does work on cohesiveness too, which then includes all these things. Now, real quick anecdote, we had a guy that came in that had had a pretty bad TBI and there was a coma there a few years back and, and he, he had trouble kind of piecing his day together. And so it was identified by these peaks, you know, oh, this happened today. And so that my day was great or this happened today and my day was awful. And he missed the other 23 hours and 45 seconds, you know, and, and he wasn't able to kind of, take a day as a whole and that involved a lot of things neurologically neuroanatomically right but over time not only did the peaks and valleys even out a little bit but he also had this then experience of being able to just kind of be more present for more of his day which meant recording remembering right memory stuff remembering what happened during the day being able to make sense of it being able to just be more present and go hey you know like i'm just feeling calmer and i'm able to to include more of my experiences and how I determine how my day's going. And I don't know what the hell to call that, right? That's not a diagnosis. That's not anything. It's just this thing of, hey, we're working on specific symptoms for this guy, memory and anxiety and panic attacks and depression. But there's other things happening where he's just like sitting in his life a little more fully and able to interpret things better, which I don't know how to quantify that other than when he's in those places, he's like, it's better significantly better and then because it's not all done he you know kind of goes back and forth a little bit but hopefully i'm doing a decent job with just you know plugging neurofeedback for this thing that's really hard to put your finger on um people feel better right Got, guys how are we doing on time Jamie, you good? yeah we're, yeah. we're good for yeah yeah we're good i only got a couple more questions anyways okay all right. So my next question is like, how, 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 how long should you commit? Like, how do you know this is working? What should be your minimum like commitment to make sure that this treatment neurofeedback is working? Cause I know I've experienced two different sort of, um, uh, turnarounds or yeah. Like with my youngest, she was having, you know, it, it felt like when we were communicating to my youngest, 
before the neurofeedback, I felt like I was talking to her in a room of crowded of a crowd and she was somewhat understanding me. And I felt like almost within one or two sessions, I was able to communicate with her and she was communicating back more frequently to the point where now she's just running around like a complete goofball. That's a whole nother section, but um, I can have a conversation with her and not, not have that, that crowd effect where I didn't know if she heard me or not. Whereas my other daughter who was dealing with the anxiety, it, it took a good two months, maybe longer uh, to get her to start seeing some results. Um, what's the normal like span that you should see um, results in? I could probably go quick uh, with that. And, and it varies just like your answer very Jamie, right? And, and I'm glad yeah. you offered that because I was going to put it back on you. I'm like, hey, what's your experience as a parent? And you have these two very different answers. I, I will answer this, uh, which is pretty consistent from our point of view, treatment-wise, is you start to see improvements, just to call them something, changes pretty quickly. Like sometimes within the first session, folks will notice something then, and not always though, sometimes it's two, three, four, I would say by two, three, four sessions, you should notice something. It then becomes a matter of how long do you need to go on to sustain those changes? And that's a good question. I think a lot of providers will start at 20, 30 sessions just to, Hey, let's have this to start with. And the gentleman I was referring to earlier, um, 80, hundred. So, so significant TBIs can go on for a while because it's the matter of sustaining the change. And if there's you know, damage there, TBI, mm-hmm. then the structures that are required to, you know, assist in sustaining that change, you just you know, need a little more bolstering or you need to recruit some other areas to carry the load, et cetera. Um, so again, to summarize, it, it depends, right? Gotcha. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, I, I, same answer. You know, t- if, if someone is, you know, really wanting to back me into a corner with a number, I'll say 20 to 30 sessions just to be sure, you know, um, but we're, you know, we're, we're taking scans, we're, we're seeing before and after pics after, you know, 10 and 20 sessions to see if there's anything that, that uh, is moving on these graphs that we're looking at, but we're, you know, definitely checking in, you know, individually seeing what the progress is. And, and I, I think, you know, as we're talking about all of these things, we're talking about diagnosis and, and uh, I mean, you're asking super valid questions. Every parent asks, you know, all of those questions. And what I, what I start thinking about is, is I think before even anybody starts on this path of neurofeedback or even QEEG just to get a picture is, is to have, you know, a face-to-face conversation with, you know, us as clinicians with, with the parents and the families and the, the uh, people getting the, the, the services, um, having a conversation about the, the different paradigm, the different mindset that, that neurofeedback, you know, different realm that it's in, because it doesn't fit you know, the medication mm-hmm. paradigm, it's not a pill. It doesn't fit in with the insurance paradigm, you know, give, give, give us a number so we can know how to pay for it. So it's kind of getting away from, you know, these expectations in, in these medical models, I guess, and more into, hey, let's, let's look at this as a, a, a system, you know, your brain's a machine and uh, it has a rhythm and we're trying to get it to get itself back, you know, to, be corrected and get it uh, uh, rhythm and, and doing its own thing. We're trying to guide it to do what it's naturally 
you know, designed to do. And that's what we're doing. So it's, there's not a diagnosis. We're not using that language. And we communicate in that language, of course, because that's what we're doing. But we, we, I think we have to kind of get a blank slate here and kind of define what this, what we're doing. We're, we're doing something that that's out of, you know, your, your uh, maybe comfort zone, but out of your expectations. And so, you know, the answer to your question, once we get that, that, um, established is that, yeah, I don't know how long it's going to take, you know, how, how long is it, you know, if you do come for psychotherapy, aside from neurofeedback, how long will it take me to cure my depression? I'd still answer, I don't know, you know, it, it, yeah. you know, or if you're coming for music lessons, I, I said this in one of these other podcasts, you know, coming for music lessons and Hey, how long will it take me to learn smoke on the water? I don't know. You know, it depends on your skill level, et cetera. So, so it's kind of having, you know, establishing this up front, like, yeah, we can't use these, you know, uh, quantification questions, even though, yeah, I mean, they're real, like, yeah, I understand money and I understand, you know, not having a lot, you know, whatever. And, and you want to know, yeah, I've got other kids and I've got other, you know, uh, you know, re, uh, things that they're invested in, et cetera. So they're, they're fabulous questions, but, it, you know, on the other side of it is maybe we need to, you know, not come at it with, you know, um, necessarily you know that is the only mindset as much as hey here, here's we, we wanted to get it better and are you willing to you know do what it takes to get better give it a shot and i, I think you're going to see what you're here here to look for i think that's the that, that last part is the important part of this right yeah. let's give it a shot yeah what is yeah. that shot because you know i said earlier on this podcast a parent should go into this going hey i want to make sure I'm doing something that's going to work for my child. Right. And secondarily, how am I going to pay for it? And, and, right. and I think give it a shot is 20 sessions, you know, 20, yeah. 30 sessions. Yeah. And at the, then they can quantify, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. And I shouldn't give up until 20 or 30 sessions, even though you right. could see results right away or could take you. That's 20 right. Sessions. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's in, in line with giving it a shot, you should see things within the first handful of sessions. You should see something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's how their feedback works. And again, we've had people report they got to the parking lot and noticed something different. It's the matter of sustaining it, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, right. I experienced two different ones. I mean, I know I have yeah. one daughter with extreme anxiety issues, and 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 both of them have some sort of sensory issues. But um, it took us a while to see any results on mm-hmm. one of them. Um, right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's common. Yeah, you, you can see it right there. It takes a while. Yeah. I guess my final question is like when you're done with treatment and, and one, of, one of my children, um, I would say we're quote unquote done. The other one, um, we had to take a pause because of school. But when you're done with treatment, when should you go back? Like, I mean, if, if, if a child seems to be doing better when should you go back to be like sort of proactive to make sure that what they've accomplished, they don't start treading back into their old habits? I like how you answered the last question, Laura, and kind of, you know, blurred the lines a little bit with psycho, a psychotherapy type question, answer thing, you know? And so I'm going to answer it from that. Like if we were talking about psychotherapy and someone was quote done, um, when would you come back? When would you need to come back? I, I think it's okay calling them tune-ups, whether it's psychotherapy or, or neurofeedback. And you have to keep in mind that your perspective is going to change a little bit, right? You get to the mountaintop and things look a little different. So 
when you consistently notice things being as you don't prefer them. And I know that's a vague, super vague answer, but that's what I tell folks like, Hey, if you're consistently noticing things and you're not responding to them in the ways that you would like, give me a call, right? If you're experiencing things that don't feel good, uh, but you're responding to it in ways that, you know, lead to a better outcome, then that's life. You know what I mean? Where there's ups and downs. Um, but if you're having trouble kind of getting a hold of the ship or, or the reins consistently, right? We're allowed to have bad days. Um, mm-hmm. then, then give us a ring. And I know that's vague, but that's, that's kind of where I steer folks. Yeah. And, and you know, to come at it from the other direction is, you know, it, it is reward-based learning. This is behavior management. So if we've trained uh, a behavior, you know, you repeat a, uh, a behavior uh, with reward enough times. So, you know, a lot of our, our uh, the number of sessions we give are in the 10, you know, 10, we'll give you 10, then 20, then 30. So we, we kind of, log them in, in uh, sessions of 10 uh, because we want to repeat the same behavior over and over in the, with a reward uh, at least 10 times in order for it to stick. So, um, you know, the theory is that once you've learned it, you've learned it. It doesn't unlearn. And I'm sure there's going to be exceptions to that, but, but the point is that once you're, once you're done training that specific thing or that specific area, then, then you're done. You don't actually need to come back. And uh, uh, one of our other mentors, uh, John Anderson, I'll, I'll quote him. Uh, he's the one who trained us uh, in um, uh, giving neurofeedback, you know, being a neurofeedback practitioner. He trained us and mentored, I think, both of us. Yep. That um, he's, he lives, uh, and sorry to tell his story on him. Uh, maybe we'll get him on one day. But he, he said that you know, he lives in Minneapolis area, you know, probably one of the suburbs there. But um, he said, he I asked him one day, how's your business? And he said, what business? I'm like, well, you do neurofeedback. You're the guru. You're the guru. Where, what? He's like, there is no business. I, I, I uh, helped everybody. And so part of, part of that, you may be a little tongue in cheek for him, but, but the point is that, yeah, he, he doesn't have returning customers because they're done. They don't have to come back. So if, if you're thinking about psychiatry, you have to go to a psychiatrist for your Adderall for, you know, 30, 50 years Whereas this, it's an investment up front of time, money, resources, et cetera. Um, and, but when, once it's done, technically, it's really supposed to be done. Unless, what, you have a new issue, you get hit in the head again or, or whatever, something else comes up. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you, you do want to get, get, get things back together. Well, that's all I got for the questions for you guys. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks. And thanks yeah, for inviting sure. me on the show. Thanks for coming okay. on. Here. Thanks, Jamie. Dad Carney, thank you so much. Merry and Christmas. Merry Christmas Dad and Happy Christmas. New Year. Happy holidays, New Year. Uh, I, I think we'll we'll be here next week, won't we, guys? New Year's Eve special edition, New Year, New Year. You. Sure, that, that, that's a hot one. Okay, uh, Jamie Carney, thank you so much. Uh, say hey to the to the wife and the kids. Uh, thanks for coming on board. Right. Dr. Laura, Dr. Laura can be found at Jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. That's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com for Dr. Laura and D-R-S-K-I-P-H-R-I-N.com for Dr. Skip. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, we'd like to wish everyone a happy holiday uh, tomorrow and then a happy new year coming up. And uh, thank you to Lori Counts for the awesome music creations for the show. Speaking of the music, here we go.